You know, I'm always um, mindful that when we come to to holidays like this, that there's lots of different views and lots of different beliefs um, about what what Easter means, what Christmas means, whatever holiday it might might be. If you were to walk into Tesco today, you might think that Easter is about chocolate. I guess I conveyed that a bit as well. <laughs> you might think it's about Easter bunnies and any any other kind of idea. It's for a lot. It's just a holiday, isn't it? It's just a time to have a break of work and just time together as a family, maybe, or um, to enjoy food. But as Christians gather together for this time of year, there's just a, a, a much, much deeper meaning. There's a huge significance uh, to this week, and I want to share that with you just a bit. Uh, David read earlier the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's just one of them recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, but all the Gospels do record the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we read that and we look at that, I would not feel uncomfortable saying that I believe that this whole week, the Passion Week, from the beginning that Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly to that Friday where he was crucified, and to the Sunday of the resurrection is probably the most significant week in all of human history. Some might have different opinions. You might have some kind of view, what about this event that happened? What about this one? I would argue that this is probably the single most important event that ever took place in human history. Even the birth of Jesus, while very important because that moment God chose to invade humanity, to come and dwell as a man and be with us. But if you think about it, if that is all that he did, then really it might not have been that significant. But yet we find out that that was not all that he did. Jesus came to earth and he came to the cross and he did that for us, that the price of sin might be paid. And we looked at these things Friday night, uh, Good Friday, we gathered together and we looked at the things that uh, were accomplished on the cross. But can I ask you do, you, do you believe that those things really are ours? If, if Would you believe those things if the tomb were still holding a body? If, if there wasn't a resurrection? We looked at terms like propitiation, which is the satisfaction of God's wrath, that he has a very just and right wrath against sin, against anger, uh, against sin. He's angry against sin. Any one of us would say that we would be justified to be angry against one who murdered our little precious baby. That is a just and righteous anger against something like that. Yet the anger of God against sin is far greater. And propitiation means that the, the anger of his wrath was satisfied. It was satisfied on the cross by Jesus. We looked at redemption, which is the idea that we were purchased back from a life of slavery to sin, a life of slavery to ourselves because of the blood of Jesus. Would we really believe we've been redeemed or that God's wrath has been appeased if the tomb were still holding a corpse? Justification was another term that we looked at. That is, is simply this, that God declared us not guilty as if we've never committed any wrong at all. Would we actually believe ourselves to be not guilty? had Christ not risen from the dead. We looked at reconciliation, which is this idea that as sinners, we're, we're, we're distanced from God, we're separated from him because of our sin, and, and we need to be reconciled back to him, and that was accomplished through the cross. But again, 
Would we believe that to be the case, that we're actually God's children if Christ had not risen from the dead? And we also looked at regeneration, that, that we uh, are no longer in our sinful state, but we actually have received a, a new uh, nature. We've been cleansed. But because Jesus rose from the dead, I believe all those things are true of every one of us. Jesus' death did satisfy God's wrath. Why? He rose again. Jesus' de- uh, death and his blood did redeem us. Why? He rose again. We've been declared not guilty by God, justified in the universal versal courtroom of God. And why do I believe that? Because he rose again. We've been reconciled to our great heavenly father and the old man, the old us has been crucified with Christ and we're a new creation. And I think as believers, sometimes we lose sight of these things to be honest. And that's an easy thing to do. Just going about life, getting caught up in the the rigmarole of, of life. We forget all of the wonderful things that come to us through the cross and through the empty tomb. Paul, the apostle Paul even had that struggle. He wrote to us in Philippians 3, he's talking about his his background, his pedigree, all his accomplishments, and he's listing them in there, and he says, I was of the stock of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for the Lord, blameless before God, and yet he counted all those things rubbish, he says, because he realized that those things were just a means of self-righteousness, that they didn't get him any closer to God. Instead, he said, I want, I want to be found by God to have obtained righteousness that's through faith in Christ. And he said something very fascinating. It's the point I want to draw us to today. And it's found in Philippians 3.10 on the uh, concluding thoughts there. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul says that he counted all those things, all of his background as rubbish, and instead he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I thought that's a very interesting uh, idea. What did Paul mean by wanting to know the power of the resurrection? I mean, that's an amazing power if you think about it. The power to raise someone from the dead at will, an incredible power. Did Paul want that power? Was he hoping to go and, and raise people from the dead? You know, there are some um, areas of Christendom that, that firmly believe that, that all the power uh, is ours, but it's all seen outwardly through signs and healings and miracles and wonders and speaking in tongues and all these outside things. But Paul, Paul doesn't, doesn't go there at all. He, he, he says, I want to know that power in a way that helps me to know Christ, to know him deeper And that's what I want to look at uh, today. He actually prayed the same prayer. He had the same desire for the Ephesian church. And if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, I just want to take a look at that with you today. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul liked to pray, and the vast majority of the time that he did pray, he did not pray for material things. He prayed for spiritual things. He prayed for the things that he really wanted to see in the, church, the churches that he founded and that he planted. In Ephesians chapter 1, he gives us such a prayer. And I just want you to see, to, want you to see the things that he prays for here. Um, at the beginning, verse 15, he says, "...that I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all the saints." Because of that, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then here's what he prays for, starting in verse 17 chapter 1. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness, notice it, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice those things that Paul prays for. He prays for spiritual wisdom. He prays for understanding. He prays that they would have a knowledge of him, that they would know what is the hope of the calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and also what is the exceeding greatness of his power. And it's the same power, notice, that was used to raise Jesus from the dead. He doesn't pray here that they be given this power, He actually prays that they would know the power that they already been given. That's that's a pretty amazing thing to think about it. And some of you might be going, hold up, Kevin. Are you telling me that the power that rose Jesus from the dead is in me? That's 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 rubbish because because my my wife burns food all the time you know she can't cook I, I i would see power that would come and like make the most amazing meals you might be thinking oh my 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 husband has that kind of power then he wouldn't be snoring like he does i mean you'd be thinking all kinds of things but no the power is in us the bible tells us it's in us and the disciples were confused about this power as well and in Acts chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there with me, it's just a short left-hand turn from Ephesians, but, but keep your finger in Ephesians because we're, we're going to come back there. Ephesians chapter 1, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. He has uh, been raised from the dead. He has appeared to the disciples. He's appeared to more than 500 people. And now he is on a mountain with some of his disciples, and he is about to ascend into heaven. And it is at this place where the disciples ask Jesus a question, and he addresses them about what their next step is. And this is what he says uh, in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Jesus, in the upper room on Thursday of the same week uh, that he was crucified, promised this to the disciples. He says, it's actually to your advantage that I go, that I leave this earth and I ascend to heaven, because what's going to come in my place? He called it the promise of the helper. Here he says, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send something to you that's going to be far better than even if I were to stay with you. Now, think about that. The power that he's going to send to indwell believers is even greater than Jesus being with us. Some of us say, I'd rather take Jesus. But actually, Jesus thought it was better, and actually to your advantage, Christian, brother, sister in Christ, that he go. Which means he wants you to use the power you've been given. And the disciples are confused about this because if you remember, in their mind, the Jewish Messiah was to return and restore the power to Israel that they would be a kingdom of power because they were under oppression from Rome. And that's their misunderstanding by their question in verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
I mean, uh, we thought you were going to do it before, but then you were crucified, and we, we were really upset. We thought, okay, it's not going to happen. And then he rose from the dead. So now they really think, okay, now it's going to happen. So is it at this time, now you're going to overthrow Rome? Now you're going to give all of the power to Israel? Make no mistake, this is a question about power. And you can tell by Jesus' answer to them in verses 7 and 8. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So first of all, that's none of your business. The timing of that, it's going to happen, but that's not what you're here for. Secondly, verse 8, but you shall receive power. Interesting. They didn't say, when are we going to receive power? When are you going to restore Israel? And they said, oh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So veiled in their question was a question of power, and Jesus knew what they were really asking about. And the power that they were looking for wasn't granted. A different power was. I'm going to send you power that comes with the Holy Spirit, and that power will enable you to live an effective Christian witness. You'll be my witnesses. And I want to look at that word power there because we're going to see it again. That word power there is dunamis, where we get dynamite from, and it means strength or ability to carry something into effect. That was Paul's prayer back in Philippians, that I would know the power of the resurrection. That was his prayer for the Ephesian church, that they would know that power. He wanted to be a powerful witness for Christ, and to do that, we must know the power of the resurrection, and it's in us Colossians 1.29, Paul said this, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. He's alluding to that same power. I, I can do these things, I strive to do them, but it's according to his works in me, which is a mighty work. It's a power. Do you live with the knowledge of that power in you? It's pretty mind-blowing when you think about it. Or do you often just live in your own strength, going day-to-day, moment by moment. See, Paul had to remind the Corinthian church about that power as well. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I just love how he's, I could just hear his phrasing there. <laughs> don't, don't you know that you're, what your body is? It's a temple. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he is in you. And you got him from God. Incredible. And I want to look at this idea today to live effectively here on earth. Glorifying God in our bodies and our spirits requires a reliance upon the power of his resurrection. It's that power that's in us. And he prays another prayer, Paul does. And it's in Ephesians 3, which is why I said keep your finger there because we're going to look at Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, it's a very similar prayer to Ephesians 1. But this is a progressive prayer, meaning that each statement sort of builds upon the last. And so we're just going to look at these elements today. I want to read through Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. And this is what it says. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God, we just pray for your spirit to be with us today as we look at these few verses here, this prayer of Paul as uh, Lord, he prays for these very important elements to be um, present in the life of the church, that we would see how important these things are for us as well, to have a, a, real, a real understanding that there is a power given to us, and it's not just meant to sit there unused. You want us to do something with it. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would guide us into your word today uh, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're just going to start with the actual prayer portion of that section, which starts in verse 16. And notice he says this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That is an amazing statement, and it made me pause for a moment to think about that. According to the riches of his glory, all prayer that we ever pray anytime is according to the riches of his glory. You think about that. We are saying to God when we pray, let this be according to your standard. Let this be according to your standard of wealth and, 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 and portion and measure. Let it be your standard of glory. Would you supply these things? Because you know what? My standard is pretty meager compared to what God's riches are. And so when we pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, we're saying, God, you have it all and you can accomplish it. And the first thing that Paul prays for then in verse 16, the second half of verse 16 is a strengthened spirit, a strengthened spirit. Verse 16 says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, notice that word might there in that verse. That is the same word we just looked at that was translated power. It's dunamis. So it's the same word. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. What is the inner man? What are we talking about when we say there's an inner man? Paul used a slightly different phrase in Romans 7, 22. He says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Okay, so the inward man, what is that? What's the inner or the inward man? That is the new man. Talked about this a little bit on, on Good Friday. That is the new you, a new spirit given to those who place faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is called a spiritual regeneration. We have been, we've passed from death to life in that sense. We had an old dying self and a new one has come, but you don't see it on the outside, do you? I mean, you might look at some believers today and think, hey, you were born again? <laughs> what happened? You should go try that again. I mean, it's not seen on the outside. And we're going to see that in a bit. It's seen on the inside. It is an inner man. It is an inner you. It's regeneration that takes place. It is that moment that God washes away the old sinful self 
and places within us a new, alive spirit. If you're a believer today, you have experienced regeneration. So we already have that. We already have that. Your inner man is just as real as your outer man. I don't think we realize how real. It's real. Now, your outer self must have strength. Even if you don't go to the gym every day or run a, 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 a step or two, you have strength. You have strength in your legs to hold your body up. You have strength in your arms to move things about from here to there. And even if that's all the strength you have, you have strength. But the inner man is meant to be just as real as the outer man. And I fear that many Christians are just very, very weak in their inner selves. They just don't have strength. They can't get from point A to point B in life. They don't understand how to carry this burden here to there. They don't know how to do those things. And the reason is because they have a weak inner self. That's it. And this is what Paul's praying for. You need to be strengthened in your spirit. When we realize that that power, the power of the resurrection is actually in us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that is a game changer. Oh, that is amazing. It flips everything on its head, doesn't it? Because our outer selves grow weak. They grow frail with age. That's going to happen. But what this means is that the opposite of that is true of your inner self. Your inner self isn't growing weak and frail. Your inner self actually grows stronger with maturity and age. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Do you see why this is an important prayer of Paul? I want people to be strengthened because we get caught up in the outside. Oh, I've got this health problem. I've got this. I'm just weak. I'm just frail. I'm dying. Yes, we're all dying. It's a weak outer self. It's just going to pass away. But for the believer, he says, but don't worry about that because your inner self is being renewed day by day. You get stronger as the years go on. In fact, I, I should be going, God, I want to get older because my inner self is, is getting younger. Wait, how does this work? I, but you know what I'm saying? It's stronger. I don't want to get older. I don't look forward to that. But we don't lose heart when we recognize these amazing truths. And the more that we delight in the law of God, as Paul put it, the more we discipline ourselves to study God's word and live by it, you know, the stronger our inner man becomes. So what Paul is praying for here is spiritual power. Every Christian who submits to God's word and relies on his spirit within us will experience spiritual power, spiritual strengthening. Romans 8, 5 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So where should we be thinking about? Should we be thinking about the outward things? Hardly ever. We should set our minds on the things of the spirit. Our inner spirit can experience supernatural strengthening. And Paul prays that for believers. Now remember, this is a progressive prayer. Why is he wanting that, that prayer to be the first thing? How is this prayer going to, what's going to build on this? Why does he pray for that first? We need a strengthened spirit first that we might also be a settled home. A settled home. Look at verse 17. I'll tell you where we get this from. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is very interesting. I mentioned earlier that Christ indwells every believer at the moment of salvation. 
You already have him in you. Romans 8, 9 tells us this, that you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. We belong to Christ because his spirit is in us. In fact, if you look at that verse, spirit of God and spirit of Christ are used synonymously. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of God. That is a spirit that Jesus promised to his disciples. Oh, you're going to receive power, all right. You're looking for power. You're going to get some power. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to give you that power. A true Christian has the spirit of Christ within them. And so Paul prays this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. (laughs) Why does he pray that? Doesn't Christ already dwell in us? Isn't this confusing? Kind of. John 14, 23. Jesus told his disciples this. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and notice this, and make our home with him. A sign of love for Christ, a love for him, is just to want to obey him, want to obey his word. He says, if, if you're like that, then my father and I will come and we'll make our home right there inside. Now, Christ wants to make his home in our hearts. And, and in the most innocent of phrases from the most innocent of small Christian believers, as young as they get, right? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? That kind of phrase, it is, it is true. We ask Jesus into our hearts, but let me tell you something. I don't know that we all ask him to dwell there. And that is the word that is used here, dwell. It is katoikeo, and it means to settle in. It means to inhabit. Christ wants to inhabit it. Do you know there's another Greek word for a stranger living in a home? And that's not the word here. The word used here, dwell, katakeo, is the word that means someone who wants to establish residence. Why do we need spiritual strength to let Jesus make himself at home in our hearts? You should probably know this answer. Even, at, even being redeemed, even be lovers of Christ, there is still in every single one of us something that wants to fight the influence of Jesus Christ in our hearts. It's our flesh. There's just something there that just wants to kick back. People, I think, are happy to let Jesus into their lives, but they don't want him staying around too long. You know what I mean? They, they don't want him to start to pick out paint colors. You know, you make yourself at a home, but you know, could you leave in 10 minutes? That's the idea. There, there's just not enough room for him and me, and that is true. For Christ to dwell in our hearts means this, that, that self has to vacate. I, I cannot rule with Christ. Christ wants to rule for us. Remember that? And in verse 20 there, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. A lot of times that verse is used of evangelism. You know, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. And, and, and to a sense, that's true. But he's talking to a church. The church has locked Jesus out. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock like anyone home. Can I come in? It's, it's my church, isn't it? He's in. I'll come in and dine with you and you with me. He wants to come and dwell there. I want to inhabit there. I want to, I want to live there. I want to cook food there. That's what he's saying. And I want to have fellowship with you. 
Do we really want Christ dwelling within us? You really need a strengthened spirit because the inner man must be strengthened because if not, the flesh kicks back. Ah, God, but he's going to want me to do this. He he might want me to ah, do this or or say that. We have to give it all to him. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone you know, loves me and keeps my word, then my Father and I will come in and make our home with him. It's the Lordship of Christ. That's what this is about. And it's exhibited when we obediently trust him with our lives. And that requires faith. That's why he says uh, that, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's just not easy for us to relinquish a control. I think far too many times we think that if I, let, if I let go, if I give control over to him, you know, what, what if he messes it up? Can I just ask you, honestly, I've met a lot of people who are unwilling to, to just let Christ do it. Like, do you really look at your own life and go, you're doing such a good job yourself? Like, yeah, right, you're firing on all cylinders here? And usually these are people like desperate need of help. I'm like, well, why would you not want to let go? Because you're not doing a good job yourself. I wasn't doing a good job. I could not rule myself. But I have to trust, don't I? It's relinquishing control. Lord, I've made a mess in my life. I just can't do it anymore. And I give it to you. I want you to come in, and I don't just ask you to visit my heart, make it clean, forgive me of my sins, all these things. He does do those things, but he must dwell there and remain there. And that requires faith. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at that verse. The crucifixion and the resurrection are there, and they're both experienced by the believer. I have been crucified with Christ. If I give him control, that means I don't even live anymore. But then he also says, but I do live. (laughs) I don't live, but I do live. How do I live? I live through faith in Christ. That's how I live. My old self has been crucified. I've, I've resurrected to a new life, and now I live according to um, his standard. So that's the first thing we must do. We must give lordship to Jesus. Secondly, you've got to really believe that when we have Christ, when we really do have Christ, you know, we have every good gift. We have every good thing. You will, you will not find a better deal on the planet, let me tell you folks, okay? When Christ comes and dwells in you, you have found a very good thing. A man found a treasure, right? And he buried it. He wanted to keep it for himself. He went and bought a field. Like, this is mine. We want to treasure the gift that we found. And that means, that means we've got to understand that that's got to replace something here. In my mind, I've got to go, wait, there's nothing better on earth. But many times we, we act in a way, and we function as a way, in a way that all these things are better pursuits. It's incredible. I was reading some of the Puritan prayers of old, and you know, we read about the Puritans. Man, some of these guys just thought, I just wish I would stop and think about God in these ways more often. But he spoke about the dwelling of Christ and his spirit in him. And I just want to read this short prayer um, that he prayed. Lord, if you give me yourself, I will have every gift. If you give me your spirit, I will have every good thing. So come, Holy Spirit, and dwell in my soul. I know you will make the place of your feet glorious. If only I have your presence, I will be all glorious within. Isn't that incredible? 
And that is the idea there that, you know what, if I let him in, I let him dwell there, he's going to do a glorious thing. He's going to do a far more wondrous work in my life than I can. And when Christ reigns in us, he becomes the dominating factor in what I call the A, B, C, and Ds of our lives. I'll just give them to you really quickly. He must become the dominating factor in our A, attitudes. The very first thing. Because Jesus, he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. What are we normally? Selfish and proud. (laughs) Right? He's got to be the dominating factor. If he's dwelling there, that's where it must begin. My attitude must start to adopt the attitude of Christ. Gentle, lowly, humble in heart, not selfish and proud. B, beliefs. Our lives should be built on the foundation of the wisdom of God, not on the wisdom of the world, and that is going to come by the word of God. And so the dominating factor over our beliefs must not be coming from the world. It must come from him and his word. C is conduct. And Peter reminds us that we are to be people of a holy conduct and godliness, not, not worldliness. And D, desires, because it is at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And you won't find that anywhere in this life. And all these things we go, ah, oh, but that's so hard. How do I have him do that? Do you remember where we started with all this? You have the power of the resurrection in you. He will do these things if you let him. You just need to let him. And so we need a strength in spirit that we might make a settled home for Christ. And when we have a settled home for Christ, we're going to have a steadfast love. Look at verses 17, second half of 17 uh, to 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now, Paul uses a mixed metaphor here. He uses the biological and the architectural rooted, like a, like a tree planted, but also he says grounded or established like a, like a building would be. So a heart that is settled in Christ, established by, by Christ, by, will have selfless, sacrificial love at its heart because it comes from Christ. That's Christ. 1 John 4, 12 says this, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Love will be the natural result of a Christ-inhabited heart. And the more we know about him, the more we're gonna be amazed by his love for us. Do you ever just stop and think about his love for you? That he actually loves you individually. He loves you. I, he loves Kevin. Because I look at myself, like, there's a whole lot of unlovable in me. There's a whole lot of unlovable in some of you, let me tell you. No, but in all, in all of us, in all of us, Jesus loves you. And when we contemplate that and we come to understand that to the degree we're supposed to, we will be loving creatures like we're, we're called to be. And look at verse 18 again, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and the height to know the love of God, which passes knowledge. How does Paul want us to know the love of Christ? By experience, not just knowledge, not just head knowledge, not just words. He wants us to know it. 
I want you to know its width. I want you to know its height and depth and length. Romans 5, 5 says we can know it because hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Again, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. His love has literally been poured out all over you. So maybe Christ does come to do a paint job in our hearts. Maybe love has a certain color, but it should be all over the inner man. And we're told that hope does not disappoint because the love of God is in our hearts. It can't disappoint. Why? Because it's not just knowledge. It's in your heart. In fact, he says it passes knowledge. Human beings can't understand. We can't contemplate that. Human beings cannot understand that love. It is only known by those who are his children because Christ dwells in them. When I think about it and try to fathom it, I cannot. It's too great. I found a wonderful uh, quote by David Guzik who talks about the width and length and, and these things of love. And he says this, that God's love is wide enough to include every person. And that is true. God's love is wide enough for every single human being in this room, every single human being in this city, in this country, on this planet. It's wide enough. Our love, can that compare? No. We got our favorites. You know, I can go this far, but that person, heck no. You know, we, that's how we are. But you know what? That starts to change when God's love begins to change our hearts. God's love is long enough to last through all eternity. You know what? His love will never stop. His love will never change. He never stops loving you. There's not a point as a believer where you got, oh, I did it. Oh, now I lost the love. You don't ever lose the love of Christ. It's long enough. It takes you all the way into eternity. If his love did stop short, you, we would all be doomed. In fact, I wouldn't be celebrating anything here today because I know that I would fail him if it's by what I can earn from him. But it isn't earned. His love is just lavished on his children who've placed their faith in him. God's love is deep enough to reach the worst sinner. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter how gruesome it is. His love is deep enough. It covers all sins. Paul thought he was the chief of sinners because he persecuted Christians. He thought there's no way God can forgive me, but God did forgive him. It's deep enough to reach the worst sinner, and it's high enough to take us all the way to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? The more that we dwell upon Christ's love for us, the more steadfast and lavish our love will be. And one final one, that brings about, if you have all of those things, this strengthened spirit, you created a settled home for Christ to dwell in, and now all of this love is just rooted and grounded from your heart. It's just lavishing out. Now you're going to have a saturated soul. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. Can we be filled with all the fullness of God? Now, this is a little misleading because there's a Greek preposition there that sometimes doesn't come in the, in the English but it means to unto or to the measure of. So you might have a Bible that says that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness or, or be filled up to all the fullness of God. Because the fullness of God, to be honest, is only found in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians 2.9, it says, For in him dwells all 
the fullness of the Godhead, but bodily, right? All the Godhead bodily dwells in Jesus Christ, but it's through Christ that a believer is made complete. So his, his love and his Godhead dwelling in us, then that's, that's how we become complete. That's how we have the fullness of God. Verse 10 says that you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Incredible. The fullness of the Godhead dwelling within us because of Christ's presence there. And Paul says, I want you to know all of these things, Christians. I'm praying that you would know all these things because when we come to grasp these realities, what, what a different people we are. What a different people we can be. He's praying that believers experience life in Christ to the fullest, that they be filled to capacity with Christ. And we can be filled to this kind of fullness by the power of the resurrection, the power that dwells in us already. Look at verses 20 and 21, often read as a benediction. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He wraps it all up by saying, you know, I know that sounds like a long laundry list for you, and you might think that's impossible, but it's according to um, his power, and, and God can do exceedingly abundantly more than any I've, anything I've just asked. <laughs> what? Because I don't know, have I just heard myself correctly even? Like, this, is, this is incredible. The kinds of things Paul was praying that we might know and experience, he says, God can do exceedingly abundantly even more than that because the power that works in us. Why did Christ die and rise again? So we can come every Easter and think about it briefly and then go about our normal day? No. But so that we can be completely dominated by Jesus and his love. And there's literally nothing left of self. We, we give complete control of him. I want to close it's just by reading Ephesians 4, 13. It's just one page over there. This is his desire. This is where he wants to see us come till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Till we come to this place. You know, listen, none of us are, are here at the moment. But we have to begin to grasp the reality of what's happened in our lives. What happened on that cross? What came about because of the resurrection of Christ? What is available to humanity when much of humanity is just going about their days? They have no idea the life that they're missing here on earth, but the life that they're sacrificing in the future. What greatness of God is displayed by the resurrection? That same greatness is displayed in each of us. What an incredible thought. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for this incredible prayer by Paul. Lord, we just um, really humbled by the thought of these magnificent things. And Lord, I just pray that your people would, would take time to reflect upon these wonderful truths. Lord, these, these aren't just uh, little stories. This is the truth of the resurrection. What was accomplished on that cross what was accomplished through the empty tomb is passed on to us. We have the ability to have a whole new inner 
spirit, a whole new inner self that is inhabited by Christ, where we walk around like Jesus, looking like him, the fragrance of Christ, Paul says. Lord, would we, would we have that fragrance? Would you allow yourself to dwell in our hearts? Can we, Lord, by your spirit, release control, let you dwell there, let you inhabit us fully and completely. We might know and understand how you want us to live. You want to accomplish so much in our lives and through us if we would only let you. Lord, I pray for those maybe who have never heard any of these things before, and maybe these are just too fantastic to understand. Lord, I pray that you would just bring the simplest of truths to their hearts, Lord, the chief of which is that Christ loves them, and he died for them on that cross 2,000 years ago, that they today, 2,000 years later, might know that there is forgiveness of sins, and there is a hope of eternal life if they would only accept him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.